All right, we return this morning <clears throat> to our study of Song of Solomon. So if you want to turn to Song, Song of Solomon, a study that I hope will ignite a passion in your heart for your spouse if you're married and for your marriage, a study that will deepen your appreciation for the very concept and the very idea of marriage and sexuality, and a study that will elevate your, your affections for the Lord, uh, the maker of, of marriage. And as I mentioned last Sunday, my hope is that you will think creatively, uh, you know, not just, not just learn some things, but you will really think creatively about, as we go through this uh, series in the next few weeks, about what steps that you could take in light of our study uh, to grow in both your marriage and in your relationship with Christ, no matter where you are on, on the spectrum. Uh, because I understand we've got a, a, a wide range, uh, a, a range of different people that are in this class. We have some here that, who, who are not married. Uh, we've got some of you that are married, but ha- that have only been married a year or two. And there's a good chance that you have a lot of passion, but a lot of igno- ignorance, <laughs> maybe to go with all of that uh, energy and passion. Uh, there are those of you who are married and you've perhaps got a son or a daughter or maybe a couple of children that are in, in, their, in their early years, maybe under the age of seven. Uh, you are the exhausted ones, uh, the ones that look, look tired all the time uh, running after those, those babies. Some of you have children that are school age, ages seven to 12. Others of you have teenagers um, and you may be struggling to find out how not only to be a parent but to be the influencer uh, in the lives of your children. Uh, some of you uh, have children that are in college, and your, your kids are through those teen years, and, and you lived to tell about it. Um, and then there are, I think, a couple of you, a few of you in here who have, have some grandchildren. And through every stage of marriage, uh, life changes. Uh, communication changes. Uh, sexual intimacy in marriage changes, parenting changes, and for each of those stages of life and marriage, it's important to consider how the teaching of Song of Solomon applies to those those areas. Uh, Kelly and I, uh, my wife and I, have been married for 24 years. Uh, we're coming up on our 20, 25th year anniversary this coming uh, summer, and through this uh, through these different seasons of life, we have noticed. Uh, that the dynamics definitely change, but we need to keep striving. Uh, we need to keep growing. We need to keep advancing. Um, and as and as as a way to maybe get us thinking this morning about where we are and how we need to change, I just thought I would pose a question just for for those of you in particular who who are married. Um, just something for you to be thinking about. Maybe you want to write this down or just make a mental note of this, but just to think about this question. What two words describe your marriage right now? What two words describe your marriage right now? Maybe, maybe they are both good words. Uh, maybe they're both honest but perhaps uh, very hard words, difficult words. But just make a mental note of them or, or write them down somewhere, and I'm, we're going to come back to that at the end. Now let's uh, do a little bit of review because we just began this series last week, and um, uh, last time we laid a lot of groundwork for this particular series. I gave you some of the pertinent background information, 
and describe the way that we're going to approach uh, this, this book. We said that the title of the book uh, is not Song of Solomon. Typically, again, they, the, um, uh, the, the title of the books of the Bible that we have, usually we get those titles from the first verse, the first line of that particular book. And it doesn't necessarily here in, in chapter 1, verse 1, say the Song of Solomon. What it says is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So it was written by King Solomon, and of the thousand and five songs, we learn about this over in 1 Kings, uh, that Solomon was a prolific uh, songwriter, wrote, wrote a number of Proverbs. Um, but of those thousand and five songs that he composed, we might could say that this was his greatest hit. This was his number one. This was his best of, of all the songs that he wrote. And although Solomon, Solomon's life was riddled with immorality and relationships with women that caused his heart to turn away from God, yet the Lord used him to write this song that expresses the romantic love and devotion for one woman, a maiden named, uh, we, we refer to as the Shulamite, or some refer to her as the Shunamite, uh, but basically a maiden from Shunam, uh, which was a, a town there in Canaan, um, who was the one true love of Solomon's life, and, and perhaps some suggest his, his first, first wife. Now, as far as the interpretation of the book, the number of views is endless. Uh, I, I mentioned to you that I've got you know, 16, 18 or so books, commentaries on this, on Song of Solomon, and uh, the, the views are all, all over the place. Uh, it may, there may be more interpretations of this particular book than, than any other book uh, of the Bible. I didn't give you all of those various views, but I did mention some of the concerns that I have. Uh, I, I mentioned the concerns that I have with the allegorical and the typological interpretations uh, and trying to find a spiritual meaning behind the descriptive, descriptive passages about the love relationship between the man and the woman in this song. Uh, in other words, seeing the man as God and seeing the woman as, as Israel, that would be the more traditional al- allegorical uh, interpretation. Uh, that is to say that uh, those who, who interpret this book in an allegorical way do not believe there was a literal man or a little, literal woman that this... This is just an, an, an extended uh, allegory to emphasize the relationship between the Lord and His people. Uh, or there's this more of a, this typological view, which is really views the man here as, as a type of Christ and the woman as a type of the church. Uh, the main difference would be that in the typological view, there's, an, uh, there's a, a, an, an acceptance or an understanding that there was a literal couple. So there is a, this is about a real man and a real woman and, and their relationship, but they, they're, they're simply types of that relationship that Christ has with the church. And we talked about, a little bit about the difference between you, using the, or, or the, the concept of typology as opposed to just saying that, that a marriage relationship points to Christ. Because we're going to come back next week. We're actually going to jump over briefly to Ephesians 5. There are clearly connections, right, between, a, between what marriage is and the relationship between Christ and the church, but that is, that's much different uh, than this type, typological view that we, we looked at. 
I also mentioned the concerns I have with handling this book like some sort of a, um, a sex manual or some sort of handbook on how to date. Uh, we certainly have had a problem in recent years with some pastors uh, turning this song into something that is perverted, something that is corrupted, uh, stripping it of its dignity. Preaching sermon series on sex to, to boost numbers as, or as a way to sort of attract people in the community, uh, the unchurched, to try to get them in the doors of the church. Uh, some pastors even issuing what they would refer to as sex challenges to their church members. So basically uh, strapping their people with some sort of a, an expectation, for instance, that a husband and wife should be intimate with one another for seven straight days or something like that. I mean, where pastors are actually suggesting how you should, in very detailed ways, how a husband and wife should should relate to one another in, an, in, in a sexual way. Or 30 days. Or 30 days. Yeah, there's, this stuff's all over the place. Um, and, and not that it's wrong to preach or teach on the topic of sex, because Scripture has a lot to say about that particular Subject. So if you're going to be faithful to the word, if you're going to preach the whole counsel of God, you've got, you have to touch on this, this issue. Uh, but what, it, what is wrong is failing to recognize that the language which, which Scripture employs when dealing with the physical relationship between husband and wife is always careful, often plain, sometimes poetic, usually delicate, frequently muted by euphemisms and never fully explicit. And even in this song, even this love poem is filled with euphemisms and word pictures in order to gently, subtly, and elegantly express the emotion and physical intimacy of marital love in language suitable for any audience. So that is to say that if you had a seven-year-old daughter... Your seven-year-old daughter, you could probably read this, and she would go, oh, that's, that's great, not wonderful, because she wouldn't understand everything that's there. But then if, you, if it was a 22-year-old young man, right, there would, he would realize that some of the things in here represent other things, right? But the, but the writer of Scripture, Solomon, would, doesn't portray or doesn't communicate those things in a way that would stir up some sort of a, of a carnal lust. So scripture, scripture never does that. And, and so even if you think about, we mentioned this, the Apostle Paul, who was writing to the church at Corinth, who was in some ways you know, not a lot different from our culture, but, but we know a lot about the Corinthian society and uh, a society that was extremely loose and, and, and very free in their expression of these things. But even, even when Paul refers to sexual sins in his letters to the Corinthian church, he doesn't get into explicit detail. So he, he, he speaks honestly and he speaks sometimes bluntly about things, but never, never in, a, in a, uh, a crass way. So the way that the Holy Spirit discussed the holy intimacy and privacy of marital love is antithetical to the sort of crass, graphic, pseudo-interpretations that some contemporary evangelicals seem to crave. Uh, Regarding those who would interpret this book in a way that is more explicit than the Holy Holy Spirit was, this is a Trimper Longman, this is his quote. He says, quote, Eisegesis like that reveals nothing about the book but everything about the interpreter. 
right? Good statement. So we will attempt to interpret the song normally, taking it at face value while understanding the frequent use of poetic imagery, uh, remaining sensitive to the language of imagery and attempting to follow its contours without imposing too much demand on specifics of interpretation. So this is love poetry. It is a song that celebrates the marital joy experienced by the man and the woman, a song that has been given to us by God to demonstrate his intention for the romance and loveliness of marriage. Now, what about the structure of the book? Well, last Sunday, last Sunday I mentioned the chiastic structure uh, and the use of parallelism. Uh, and I got this, I put this back up here, this chiastic stru- structure, what we call a, a chiasm. Uh, a chiasm is simply a writing style that uses a unique repetition pattern for clarification and or emphasis. Uh, it's a repetition, if you will, of similar ideas in the reverse sequence. And so, for example, here, you've got this a, ABC, the way that ABC relates, you would do ABC and then CBA. And the reason it's called a chiasm, as I mentioned, is because the, the, the Greek letter key is the, X, is the X symbol. And so it's just saying it has this sort of uh, X type structure, or even you might say of sort of a, we, we, when we look at it, we would say more of a V type structure. And I Pass this out. You've got this. Hopefully you're able to... I didn't have enough for everybody, but I put them on the chairs this morning. Just some sample outlines because I felt like last week when I was describing this, it wasn't maybe clear to you where I was um, sort of going with this. Uh, for those of you who aren't, you know, may have not been as familiar with this, this type of form. Uh, but I just give you these really just to emphasize the fact that this is a, this is a very common way. For one, this is a very common structure you, you find in, in Scripture, period. Uh, some have said there's up to 2,000 different, different um, examples in the Old and New Testament of this kind of form and structure. But just to show you, if you start at the top, this one that's got multiple outlines on it, just going down through here, uh, what I wanted to sort of point out was the, the breaks, for one, in, in the different sections of, of this book are very similar. So, you know, there's, there are some differences here, even in, even in how the book is interpreted. But still, the way in, the way in which the book has been broken down and divided is, is very similar. Uh, you've got the one at the top. And again, this, they've just broken it into four different uh, sections but you'll notice there that the center of the book, and this is really when it, we're talking about using chiasm for emphasis, that's what, that's what we mean, is that there's, there's a focal point to the structure, and in this case, it is the consummation of the marriage. It's, it's the day of the wedding. The second, exa- second example there, you have the first section, love is anticipated, uh, love found and lost and found, and then Love is consummated. Again, you'll see that as the center from chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 5, verse 1. And then you'll see this, this CBA-type structure going down where, again, lost and found, and then love not anticipated, but love is affirmed. And some would even say that the affirmation, and we'll look at this today in chapter 1, there's affirmation in chapter 1. Uh, Glickman's outline... Uh, the beginning of the story, an invitation to enjoy spring day, night of separation preceding the wedding, and then again the center, the wedding day and wedding night, and then followed by, again here goes the reverse order, night of separation following the wedding night, an invitation to enjoy spring, a spring day and the completion of the story. 
Uh, if you have a MacArthur Study Bible, this is the outline that, that uh, he proposes. Uh, the first main, basically three sections, the first one being the leaving, the, the courtship, uh, and then in the center, uh, again, chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 5, verse 1, the wedding. This is the cleaving. Um, and then in fact, chapter 5, verse 2, down to the end of the book, the actual marriage following the wedding, referring to the weaving. So he basically takes the Genesis 2 passage uh, of, um, of this leaving, cleaving, and weaving idea and sort of uses that as the, as the basis for this, this particular uh, outline. Uh, then the last one there at the bottom, falling in love, courtship overtones, then the wedding, and then again marriage overtones following chapter 5, verse 1, and then again falling in love. So that's just, just to show you, this is, these are a lot of different people, you know, looking at, the, looking at this book, trying to understand this book, but many of them are sort of seeing this same kind of a framework. And if you want a really detailed Breakdown, then turn it over, and on the back, this is uh, R.L. Alden's outline. And again, he, what he did is he's looking not so much the, at the thematics of the courtship, the, the 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 wedding itself, and then the marriage. He's looking at more of the terminology, some of the some of the terms and the phrases that are used, and it's amazing. It's like you it's like you take something if if you had a mirror right here and you put this on it like this and you would see the opposite it's like he's just saying you can cut this book in between chapter 4 verse 16 and chapter 5 verse 1 and it's almost a mirror reflection as far as the actual use of actual use of terms so i just give that to you you know just to in some ways support kind of the way that we're going to approach this and also you know uh, i assume you're going to be reading this and maybe doing some study on your own and hopefully those outlines will be will be uh, helpful for you. Now, as far as the characters in this romance, we mainly have a man, a woman, and a chorus of girls. Okay? And, and there is this interaction that takes place. So we have, you know, uh, she, the, 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 the Shulamite, the uh, maiden, she's speaking, and then you'll have this group of women that sort of like come out, and it's like there's this refrain or this chorus, and then he speaks, and and you'll see this even today in chapter 1, but just this, this sort of bouncing back and forth and then at times this interjection by, by the daughters of Jerusalem. Uh, this book is really a progression of a romantic story set in the context of an overall love song. So it's about a man, Solomon, and a woman, the Shulamite maiden, and they are looking back over, if you will, their married life and reflecting on the beauty of their young love, the beauty of the first consummation of their love, the beauty of their love after that consummation, and what it means to grow old together. And they're looking through the lens of history with a wonderful view of what marriage is all about. Looking back on what happened in their lives and what was going on in their hearts in order to be able to know the beauty and to be able to communicate the beauty of what their marriage has meant to them. And there is a significant amount of emotion that is communicated as this couple sings this song to one another. So as you're going through this book, you need to think of this book as, as the song for this couple. Okay, They're singing it to one another, and they are using language that is meant to communicate meaning. At the same time, you need to look through the words that that they say and use to catch the symbolism 
and the beauty and the emotion of what they are trying to communicate. Now, with all that, sort of, sort of as a foundation for us, let me just read beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, and I'll just read down through chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, The song of songs, which is Solomon's, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. Now, here's the friends, right? We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. The bride again, verse 5, I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. My, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, this is her to, to, to him, to her lover, tell me, O you whom my soul loves, Where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you yourself do not know, most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. To me, my darling, you are like my mare. This is now him to her. To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Right, so clearly some symbolism there, saying you're a horse. Um, <laughs> your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. Here come the friends. We will make for you, so this is an example we talked about in the, in the Hebrew. Here's the feminine singular. So we know that it's being addressed to her because of that pronoun, right? We will make for you ornaments of gold with beads of silver. And here's the bride, verse 12. While the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved, my beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. The bridegroom, verse 15. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. The bride, verse 16. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our houses are cedars, our rafters, cypresses. Chapter 2, 1, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Okay, we'll come back to that maybe next time, but that ought to be a familiar title phrase to you from our hymnology. Uh, Verse 2, like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. The bride, verse 3, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. Let his left hand be under my head, and his right hand embrace me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases." Now, some have suggested this section contains dialogue which would only be appropriate in marriage, especially there in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 there at the end, and even chapter 2, verse verse 6. Um, But these verses could very well describe their relationship before the wedding. Um, The argument for this view 
there's a s- several factors here. One is the fact that the wedding is not mentioned until, until chapter 3. So again, we don't really, that, that the wedding isn't actually brought up until we get to verse 11 in, in, uh, in the third chapter. The term bride also doesn't appear until chapter 4, verse 8. And then when we do get to chapter 4, verse 8, it's mentioned six times in just a few short verses between chapter 4, verse 8 and chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, and based upon this verse 7 here in chapter 2, and we see it again over in chapter 3, that the woman or the, the Shulamite maiden has a healthy preoccupation with sexual restraint. So I'm just saying, the, 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 I guess one of the, the, the debates is, again, is this sort of a looking back on marital love and, and this section that precedes that center section that talks about the, the day of the wedding and the consummation of, of the marriage, is it just referring to their marriage in general, or are we really going back in a chronological way? For instance, in the MacArthur Study Bible, where it's actually saying chronologically, this section deals with courtship, and then we have the marriage, the, the wedding, and then we have the, the time period after, after the wedding and the marriage itself. So just just know there's there's kind of two different veins there, and what I'm saying is that even if you take the chronological view, if you're saying that this these verses that we just read really describe that time period prior to them getting married, then you just have to understand that these are things that would have been going through their minds. This is a song, is what I'm saying. This isn't like a this isn't like a drama to be acted out. You see what I'm saying? It's not like, okay, the guy does his part and then the girl does her part. This is, this is music, right? This is, this is song. It's, a little, it's not as cut and dry um, in that sense. And so if you do take it as, in that way of, of describing courtship, just understand that these are, a lot of these things are things that were, are being felt, right? These are things going through these individuals' minds at the time. But based upon chapter 2, verse 7, there's still this restraint. So any of you who are married can, I think, attest to this, that the days leading up to the marriage, these kinds of thoughts, right, these are going through your mind, even if there is this issue of overriding self-control to say, we're not married yet, right? But the desires are there. And so either way, I think it works. Let me just make some observations for us this morning, just mainly focusing in on on chapter one. I'm going to give you five of these Five observations about the Song of Songs and marriage, okay? Observation number one, marriage is awesome. Marriage is awesome, okay? This isn't just a song. This is the song of songs, right? It is the best of songs. This song was elevated as an important and beautiful statement about marriage and sexuality, and there is nothing on earth that is more a more appropriate picture of the ultimate reality of the gospel and Jesus's relationship to the church. And those of you who are married know this, right? When your marriage is working well, when you are loving one another, when you are experiencing unity, when you are communicating well with one another and understanding each other, when you are in sync with one another, when conflicts are quickly resolved, in that moment, marriage is the most incredible relationship ever. There's nothing better. To be linked to some, someone else, to have a one flesh union with them, to be known, 
to love and to serve them, to be there for one another. There is nothing more glorious. This is the Song of Songs. But you also know that the reverse is true, right? There is nothing more painful than when marriage begins to tank. When you begin to use the things that you know to turn the knife of your own self-centeredness, when sexuality isn't a way to express love but a way to grab a hold of power or claw for my own desires, when parenting and other issues are difficult because we're on a different page, it's painful. So marriage can be the most glorious human relationship on the planet, but it can also be hurtful and misused in dishonoring. So in chapters 1 and 2, we have a bride and a groom who are anticipating, I think, anticipating their wedding and their life together. And chapter 1 really serves as an introduction to their passion for one another. Interesting to note, in this section from chapter 1 verse 1 all the way to chapter 3 verse 5, 32 out of the 39 verses are spoken by the Shulamite. Okay, so the majority of, of this first part of the book, the Shulamite, the, the woman is doing the majority of the speaking with brief interludes by her beloved and the daughters of Jerusalem. Again, this is likely her remembering past events combined with the desire of her heart to marry the king as she anticipates his arrival to take her to Jerusalem for the wedding. So marriage is awesome. Okay. If you read that chapter 1 and you miss that, then I can't help you, okay? Because you read it and you're just like, this is good. This is good, okay? Second observation, to add to that, marriage is the best of all human relationships. Marriage is the best of all human relationships. There is no more significant human relationship on earth than marriage. A chapter 2, or chapter 1 here in verse 2, this again is the, this is the bride, this is the maiden from Shunem, Shunem, she says, verse 2, May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. This verse could be a summary of the entire book. The kiss refers to the physicality of their love, and, and the physicality of their love is, she says, better than wine. Now, why would she say that? Well, wine is intoxicating, Right? Um, I think of it this way. If, if used in excess, right, wine can do a lot of things, right? It can make you lightheaded. It can make you happy. It can make you act stupid. It can move you to spend money on things you shouldn't spend money on. It can move you to say things that are in, in there, right, that you wouldn't normally say, right? <laughs> that that's, that is what this that is the effect that this love is having on, on this, this woman. She is saying that the love that she has for this man is powerful and those emotions are incredibly strong. So again, just to, as a way of uh, just stepping back here in, in a way of application, this might be something else for you to consider if you're married. On a scale of 1 to 10, where is the strength of emotions that you have for your spouse right now? Where is the strength of emotions that you have for your spouse right now? And, and, and then from that, what would it take to move that up a notch or two? 
Verse 3, she continues, Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. So she loves, the, we could say she loves the smell of her man. Okay? She loves everything about her man. One commentator suggests this, that she loves his lips, his love, his lotion, and his life. <laughs> Got to alliterate it, right? But his kiss, basically, the, 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 um, the scent, the aroma, the love, and his lifestyle, specifically his pure lifestyle. She has great respect for him, and she loves his name. And so she's drawn, she, she feels drawn to identifiable qualities in Solomon, and he would later notice some of these same features in her. So when we get later in the book, in chapter 4, you'll see that he's, he's sending some of these, these compliments and these, um, mentioning some of these qualities when it, in, in regard to his, his view of her. Verse 4, draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers, which could be understand as simply, again, the desire of her heart rather than a statement of fact or the experience of their courtship. Nevertheless, she has this strong longing for him, this, this strong desire. So we could just summarize it this way. This man and this woman are pursuing one another. They're pursuing one another. Again, a question. How are you pursuing your spouse? How are you pursuing your spouse? And how have you done that in the last two weeks? Because the reality is most people are going to say in some respect, they're going to, yeah, I pursue my spouse. I love my spouse. I appreciate them. I'm pursuing them. But you've got to get it down to, I think, more practical manifestations. How, how are you doing that, right? So this is the th- something that I encou- encounter in counseling all the time, right? I mean, if you ask a wife, do you respect your husband? Most wives say, yeah, I respect him. <laughs> the, the question is not, do you respect your husband? It's how are you showing respect for your husband? You look, at, you look at a husband, you say, do you love your wife? Oh, yeah, I love my wife. Okay, how have you expressed love for your wife in the last two weeks? Right? That, that is a more difficult question to answer. So if all I did was tell a husband and wife, your homework assignment for this week for counseling is I want you to respect him more and I want you to love her more. If that's all I told them and, I, and they came back the next week and I said, well, did you do your homework? They'd probably both say yes. But the question is, well, how is it manifested? Where, where's, the, where's the expression of it? How can we quantify that in some, some way, in some observable, demonstrative way? So are you pursuing your spouse and... And what examples could you give in the last two weeks of, of that pursuit? You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> Some people, when they were dating, would drive hours to see each other. Right? How many of you did that? How many of you had to, had to get in the car and drive a distance? How far? Two, 277 miles every every. <laughs> just weekend. rough numbers. Just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 Southwest Indiana, Northwest Indiana, every weekend for for, for for two for two years, five hours. Five hours, two years. Well, why not? We we win though. We had over three thousand miles. Three thousand miles. <laughs> How often? Once a month. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, my wife, when we were engaged, my wife, I, I, I was in a youth ministry position in South Georgia, which is about a three and a half, four hour drive from here. And, and Kelly lived in, in this area. She lived in Ackworth. And so regular, it was just, it was the weekend thing, you know, not every weekend, but pretty regularly. She would jump in the car and most of the time she would, she would come there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, that we'll do that. You're right. We'll pursue. I mean, just don't even think about it. I mean, jump in the car and go, right? And you would plan a date like it was a military operation, <laughs> right? I mean, all kinds of research. Okay, and I and I've seen this right. I've got my my daughters here, and my son-in-law is, is in the room. And I mean, right? I mean, when when they were dating, when they were in, in during the time of of their engagement, right? I mean, it, you just didn't sort of flippantly like just on the fly decide what you were going to do, right? I mean, you would get out there and you would research places and costs and how much time is involved, and and then how are we going to go from this particular thing to that particular thing? Here's the problem. You get married, a few years go by, and then it's like, so what do you want to do? <laughs> right? I mean, is it? I don't know. I don't know. Well, the question is, how did that happen? Right? I mean, how, 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 yeah, kids, how did it go from driving 277 miles? Is that what it is? 277? 277 miles. Okay, it's one way. Two hundred and seventy-seven miles to, what do you want to do? You know, how did it go from that to that? A failure to continue that pursuit, right? To to not keep that up. So, you know, here's a question for those of you who who again have been married. Have the loves of your mate become your loves? Right. In other words, the things that they love, right? They all of a sudden, the, now you've adopted those things. I mean, they love certain things, but now that you're married and you and you've and you've you've, you've learned that and you you understand them and you appreciate them, have their concerns and their loves. Have you adopted those as your own? Because something can happen over time, right? We can begin, we can begin to not allow the passionate pursuit of one another to be at the forefront of our thinking. So this, this woman here in chapter 1, she dreams of running with him, right? She, she dreams, she longs to be a part of his house. We can even say she longs to be a part of his bedroom. She longs for that, okay? Uh, number three, moving on. Observation number three, marriage should be celebrated by others. Marriage should be celebrated by others. It's interesting that right away, these girls show up, right? Middle of verse 4. These friends. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. So we, we have this introduction of these chorus girls, if you will, these daughters of Jerusalem. And what they are doing is they are praising the idea of marriage, and they serve also to affirm the worthiness of this man. So these other girls are also affirming the beauty of marriage, right? And we could say that that is what marriage does. It makes other people look at marriage 
and say, I love marriage too, and I don't even have a marriage. Even if they're not married, when when they see this, right, this this thing that God made, that God designed, he put together, and they see husbands and wives treating each other in these kinds of ways, loving each other, serving each other, understanding each other, respecting each other, it causes others to chime in, right? <laughs> to say, this is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing. I have a, a son that's engaged to be married in a few months, right? And it's just, I mean, even people that aren't married are coming alongside of them. And right, they're, they're, what? they're, doing, they're echoing this, right? They're praising the idea, the very concept of marriage. So this is what happens when a, a husband and a wife live out a godly and a faithful marriage. And the world really needs to see some godly and faithful marriages because they've certainly seen plenty of examples of bad ones. Number four, marriage is a refuge from insecurity. Marriage is a refuge from insecurity. Verse five, the bride, I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not stare at me because I am swarthy. For the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Here the bride talks about her appearance, and she is embarrassed uh, about her appearance. And the reason is that beautiful women in the ancient Near East were not tanned, right? They were fair-skinned. Because to be tan meant that you worked outside and that you were a part of the common class. So she has dark skin because she was a common laborer. That is apparently who she is. She is not worthy in rank for the love of this shepherd or this prince or this king who is going to come. She's been sent out into the fields to take care of the vineyards, but she has not been able to care for her own responsibilities because her family has treated her in such away. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. She's beautiful, right? She's beautiful. But what is interesting as you go through this book is that right here at the beginning, something surfaces that is going to be a thread throughout the book, which is this. There is a fundamental insecurity that she's bringing into this relationship. So a question for the ladies. Does this resonate with you? Because it's not uncommon for a woman to walk into a room and to look around and to assess who is the most attractive woman in the room. Now, guys, don't, like I said, we're, we're different. We're going to talk about some of these differences as we go through. But it's not uncommon for a woman to do that, to think about how she measures up, to think, how is my beauty compared to this other person? Or how does my body compare to that of others? So there's a fundamental insecurity that she brings into the relationship. And there is also a fundamental insecurity that the man brings from the male perspective, which will come up later. But the beautiful thing is this, that marriage can actually be a refuge from that latent insecurity in women and that latent insecurity in men. 
Marriage at its best is a husband and wife who come in their insecurity and find security in one another and their ultimate security in the person and the work of Jesus. Verse 7. She longs to be where her man is. She wants him to be her lifelong companion. She says, tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do, your, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? So she wants to be able to find him, and she wants him to know that she has been living a pure life, not wanting to give the appearance of a prostitute who followed the shepherds. For instance, you can example of this over in Genesis 38 with Tamar. Uh, hence the reference here to her not wanting to veil herself. So that was, that was a, a common thing for the, for the uh, harlots to do, the prostitutes to do. Or it could simply mean that she wanted to be one who is known openly. That she wanted to be known as Solomon's wife. Right? She didn't want that to be concealed. She wanted that to be known. She, she didn't want to have to veil herself. But she wanted to belong to him. She wanted to belong. And again, this, this physical insecurity thing can rest deep in the heart of a woman. Especially today, right? With the advent of, of widespread, widespread pornography, with common, common practices the, uh, of airbrushing images, um, the growing use of, of surgery to enhance physical features, all of that. All these things have a deeply negative effect on women and wives. And, and men, you, you, you might just want to ask your wife if she agrees with, with that. I guarantee you that she will. So what, what this book is going to do is to set the insecurity at rest in an accepting, loving, beautiful, I think you're amazing kind of marriage relationship. That is why throughout the book, mentioning body part after body part, he is going to praise and extol and honor and make much of her beauty. And she is going to say some, some things as well. But from the very beginning, we see this latent insecurity that is there. So husbands, this is for you, right? To, to understand these insecurities, to really value the beauty of your wife, uh, for the two of you to see what true beauty really, really is. So Song of Songs is a passionate book and it clearly touches on on sexual intimacy, as we'll see, but it, it, it elevates the entire person. Uh, it elevates the entire marriage as something that is supremely attractive. So verse 8. Now, this could be he or they, right? So we look here at what he or they do, and either would be acceptable. And depending on, again, the translation you have, some of the translations have the titles or they're try, trying to give you an indicator as to who's speaking uh, some would say that it's, it's Solomon here. Others would say, again, this is the chorus. This is the, the daughters of, of Jerusalem. But verse 8, it says, If you yourself do not know what most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tent of the shepherds. So it's either the daughters of Jerusalem who are again affirming her, encouraging her not to fret over her days in the field, or it's him, it's Solomon identifying where he can be found, but before that, referring to her as the fairest among 
women, lavishing her with praise. Very, it sounds a lot like Proverbs 31, right? This, uh, this praise of her, if this is indeed Solomon speaking in verse 8. Let me give you one final here before we break. One fifth and final observation. Marriage is a place for affirmation. Marriage is a place for affirmation. In these final verses of chapter 1, we see something that is frequently found throughout the book, which is admiration through value comparison. So he is going to compare her and she is going to compare him to things that are supremely valuable. Solomon, verse 9, To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. All of these things incredibly valuable and incredibly precious and lovely. This is what he is saying about this woman, that, that in effect she is to be praised and that she is to be decorated with unbelievable loveliness. The friends, again, the girls show up again, creating a greater spotlight on this compliment and this beauty. Verse 11, we will make for you ornaments of gold with beads of silver. Then she responds to his affirmation with her own communicating her affection for him. Verse 12, while the king was at his table, my perfume, nard, is the, I think in the ESV, gave forth its fragrance. It's as if this is, this is like a, a love potion. So notice what happens. He praises her beauty. She affirms his sexual desirability. Okay, and that's the part that we'll get into. It's going to come out a little bit later. But I think that's the key to understanding this book. Him affirming how lovely she is and her affirming how much that she wants him. Those things going back and forth. Because at the core of a woman is an insecurity about how she looks, her appearance, and at the core of a man is an insecurity about whether or not he is really desirable. She continues, verse 13, My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh, this, this, this aromatic resin, which lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. It's that has to say, he's like, he is refreshing. He's like a, a place of refreshment in the midst of a dry desert. Then the man compliments her again in verse 15. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. She returns the praise. Verse 16, how handsome you are, my beloved. And so, so pleasant indeed our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our houses are cedars, our rafters. Cypresses. So it's like the praise going back and forth, right? It's just back and forth and back and forth. And what happens over time in marriage, unfortunately, is I think we get used to the praise. We just sort of take it for granted, right? Because most couples, I would say, early on do these kinds of things, verbally affirm and verbally express these things. And I think what happens over time in, in, in many marriages is couples simply get used to the praise and begin to think, yeah, you got that right. You know, it's like that instead of, you know, I don't deserve that. I'm not that. I'm not this. You know, we just get accustomed to it. And on our side, we stop praising the other person. We just stop doing it. And what's going to be interesting is these, these things, these types of compliments are going to go beyond the wedding. So you're going to get to the wedding in the center of the book, but guess what comes after that? More of this. Into the marriage, right? 
So, marriage is a place for affirmation. So just some questions for us as we kind of wrap up, kind of go back to where we started this morning. Think about the words that describe your marriage. Remember that? Those two words in your mind, or you wrote them down? Think about those words that describe your marriage, and, and then think, think about this. Do you like those words? Do you like the words that you chose? And what words would you want to have? And what would you need to do to make those words a reality? For those of you with kids, if I asked your kids about your marriage, what would they say? What would they say? Husbands, do you affirm your wife's beauty and her attractiveness? Wives, do you affirm your husband's sexual desirability? And, and, and even if you're thinking, well... My spouse doesn't deserve that kind of affirmation. I think the real question is this. Does Jesus deserve the honor of your affirming someone who is not perfect? Because that's, really that's really the issue. It's not, it's not does your spouse deserve, because they're not perfect, right? And you say, well, I don't think they deserve that affirmation. That's okay. The question is, do you think that Jesus deserves the honor of you affirming someone who is not perfect, (laughs) and he does. So, are there pockets of harshness or negativity or a lack of affirmation in the context of your relationship? What does Song of Solomon teach us thus far? That love begins, love grows, and love blossoms as verbally you express your appreciation and respect for one another. So if there was one thing that you could do to help improve your marriage, do you have any idea what that would be? And may I suggest to you, it may just be as simple as a conversation about some of these issues. It may just be starting with saying, you know what, I've got to talk to my spouse about, about these things. right? I need to get their input on this. I'm sure your spouse could give you some suggestions on how to begin putting some of these things into practice. So this is the Song of Songs, because marriage is the relationship of all relationships. It is the thing that points to Christ. It is the environment in which the glory of God and the gospel through the work of Christ becomes most evidently clear. When two broken sinners are able to love one another and make something special in a broken world where marriage is no longer viewed as special and sexuality is no longer viewed as sacred. So we'll come back next week. We're going to focus mainly on on chapter 2. And and again, just in a similar way, we're just going to kind of walk through the text. We're not going to point out every single symbol. uh, But we're going to try to, week after week, just pull out some, some, and understand the meaning, and then try to bring it down to some, some good application for us. By the time we get done, we're going to talk about singleness. So, you know, we're going to talk about those things. As well, we're going to talk about the danger of making marriage an idol, right? Because when I say it can be a refuge, obviously, right, we don't put our ultimate confidence in marriage. So there's, there's a balance here in some of these things. And I think if, we, uh, if you just hang in there by the time we get to the end, we'll, we'll try to round all of that out, okay? So uh, 
Thank you for praying for me. I did ask a couple weeks ago that you would do that, and that's, uh, I appreciate that. And um, again, I, I pray this will be a, the Lord is going to use this in all of, our, all of our lives, regardless of where we are right now in, in, in our relationships. Okay? All right, guys, thank you for your time.